Hey there, my name's Doug Bird and welcome to Something Fresh, where we talk to adventurers, athletes and progressive thinkers. On this show, we aim to create an environment where you, the listener, can escape, explore and learn through interesting people who have achieved great things. The idea is to help people grow, become inspired and through that, encourage them to take that first step towards doing something about it. If that's not up your rally and you're simply here to listen to interesting conversations, then that's cool too. Thanks for tuning in. Now's the time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Welcome back to Something Fresh, where we talk to innovators, athletes, and progressive thinkers. My name is Doug Bird, and it's my pleasure to be hosting you once again. In today's episode, we're going to be chatting to John Wakefield, who is the Head of Coaching and Performance Coordination at Team UAE Emirates, which is, of course, a World Tour cycling team. He also is a Director and Coach at Science to Sport. And uh, John dedicates his time between coaching and performance with individual athletes, both locally and internationally. His portfolio of athletes have gone on to do great things, both in South Africa, but abroad as well, from motocross and uh, two-wheel motorsport all the way through to the sport of cycling. So, John, absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Where are you chatting to us from right now? Uh, thanks for having me, Doug. I'm at present uh, under very strict lockdown in Girona in Spain, is uh, at the moment where I call home for now. So strict lockdown here in South Africa as well. How long have you guys been in that lockdown sequence for? Uh, I think since the 8th or 9th of March, and we were extended uh, two days ago until the 10th of May, 9th, 10th of May. So yeah, we are dead uh, sent in the middle of it at the moment. Sure. So tough times all around for everybody. But from a coaching perspective, how would that affect uh, the way you go about doing things? I mean, you've got athletes that all around the world um, that you've obviously got to keep tabs on. And they're no doubt going to continue to do as much training as they possibly can with hopeful events returning back towards kind of the end of the year. But what are you what are you doing at the moment to make sure that your athletes are still doing what they need to do? Um, obviously monitoring them uh, as best as possible and there's a little bit more kind of communication now uh, just to make sure for the guys that obviously are locked up if you want to say that and have been in for a while um, that motivation and, and their mental aspect is is still good um, you know a lot of them don't really have a problem training whether it's indoors or or you know outdoors some people are allowed outside but it's more from a mental aspect where they're training, but there's no end goal in sight. You know, they, they're basically just ticking along and there's no races planned, I think, to the foreseeable future, at least until September around the world. Um, maybe in South Africa a little sooner, but I personally don't believe anything until about August. So, you know, from that side, it, it's more just keeping them motivated and saying to them, you know, keep doing your job. It's uh, Everyone has to wake up and go to work for the day and, even though yours doesn't have an end goal, you still have to go to the office. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'd imagine the mental aspect of it, though, that you touched on now is probably going to be one of the tougher things to manage as an athlete. I mean, how much of a role do you have to play in trying to to keep them motivated, so to speak? I mean, ultimately, it's it's up to each individual on how they figure out that puzzle. But as a coach, um, are we keeping these guys on eyes on the prize, so to speak? Um, still giving them, you know, you, you shift from a race target to possibly, you know, like, like a power target and you say, you know, we, we want to try get here on a 10 minute interval or something similar based around that. Um, or we want to keep your consistency up. And, you know, if you're doing 10 minute intervals, instead of fading on the fourth one, you're consistent on the fifth one. 
that has been helping a lot. Um, and then also, obviously, there's Zwift races. So you kind of jump between the two and, and get them to train, but have a Zwift race at the same time and, you know, kind of keep that race intensity there at the same time. Zwift's amazing, hey, Chief. <laughs> it's incredible to see. I mean, it was always it was always going to be really popular, but Corona, if it's done anything in the Zwifting space, it's just, it's made it next level. I mean, is that, so, so do you guys and your team train on that platform or do you kind of have your own setup? Um, we don't train on, on Zwift itself. Uh, we have a separate platform that we train on, but ultimately, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, Zwift, Ruby, et cetera, be cool. That's now come out. It's all pretty much the same, but slightly different with their own personal touch. Um, but you know, as, as a team from UAE, we use a totally separate platform where only we are on it. And then, you know, athletes, individual athletes around the world or South Africa and that are predominantly all using uh, Swift, which is great because uh, the communities are there and, and everything like that. Would, uh, would you guys allow the boys from, from your team set up to go and dabble on Zwift now and again, just to, you know, lay down some smack and make sure that uh, all their competitors around the world know that they're <laughs> on track and on form? Um, we did for a while, like when sort of lockdown, you know, really started here in Europe, one or two guys or a few of them were on Zwift, um, but then we kind of changed over to another platform. So as it stands now, unfortunately, no, uh, for the better sense of the word, but it, it'll come out soon, I, I think. But our guys are training. They, they, they're just not on Zwift. They, we're just on a separate platform. Okay. Well, right now, I guess we're talking about uh, your immediate uh, environment and in terms of what you're doing from a work perspective. And it's incredible. And it's really proud to, for what well, makes South Africans proud, knowing that, that we've got uh, yourself as head of coaching and performance coordination with the, such a a big international team, but you didn't just end up there. You know, you've you've traveled a, a journey to get there. Let's let's take a couple of steps back to to get a better understanding of of John and and where and where it all started for you. Because uh, I believe you actually come from a, a two wheel motorsport background. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Still my still my number one passion. So how I kind of got into coaching for the for, for the right wording is I raced motocross. Um, I did okay regionally around the Western Cape and nationals. I I suppose had like a moment of what I would consider personal brilliance, but I was never gonna I was never gonna make it full time. But loved the sports. Injuries was like a common thing, and um, eventually I kind of injured myself pretty badly. I broken my back and I broke my leg and right leg in, in nine places and obviously quite a, a lengthy rehabilitation period. And, and during that period, I kind of hated the guy that was doing my rehabilitation, but I really enjoyed the process. And I was like, you know, this is what I want to do in, in life, so to speak. And when I did compete in whatever sports I had sort of done over the years is I kind of preferred your Monday to Friday stuff. But when I got to a race, I was like, ah, you know, or, or a competition, I was like, yeah, oh, this is okay. But I enjoyed the practice side of it or the training side of it more. And eventually when I realized that I wasn't going to try a race motocross anymore, a, a very close friend of mine at the time had said to me, oh, you know, would, would I train him on weekends and, and have, you know, kind of help him out, which I did. And it kind of just grew from that. And yeah, eventually from the motocross side, I 
had a, a good sort of, I would say, what, like six, seven, eight years there, like really active. Um, had a, ran a team for Honda South Africa at the same time. And yeah, the guys did really well, helped develop some guys get overseas um, in terms of, you know, like going, going to go try go pro in Europe or America. Uh, spent you know, a good, good few months in America at the same time with some riders. And then um, motocross sort of died down a little bit uh, and the supermoto side and the go-karts and that, where I was a little bit dabbling at the same time. And um, I was riding bicycles at the time to uh, just for rehab and, and I kind of enjoyed racing bikes. And I'd met um, Jerun Swat during that period. And one thing led to another and eventually you know, it came up, hey, why don't you look at coaching cycling? And um, I was kind of tentative at first, but, you know, I, I loved the sport itself from from riding bikes and, you know, from there got into it and it uh, kind of just escalated really, really quickly. Um, and here we are today, you know, and that was, uh, sure, I'd probably say that was like 2010, 2009 when I kind of started in the cycling side of it. Well, all things considered, if uh, if you look at that lifespan that you've you've had in the cycling specific coaching space, you've you've achieved a huge amount in a would some would argue a relatively short space of time, which is fascinating. But we'll get into that a little bit more into a little bit more detail shortly. But going back to what you had mentioned there, a big crash. I mean, you don't just break your back and your leg in one single crash. What on earth happened there? Um, I. I was racing, we had a race in Cape Town and uh, it was an old uh, clay brick track and you would come sort of over the main table and you would have uh, like, there was a right hand and then you'd hit another table. And then there was a step down into a very sharp right hand and then you would go up the hill, up into a step up and I jumped the tabletop and as I landed and I shut off to get, shut the throttle off to get off, uh, to get off the gas into the step down, for some reason, my, my throttle had stuck open. And by the time you kind of realized what was going on, you, I was sort of mid-air on the step down and I knew I was never going to make the, the right-hander. And I tried, which in hindsight now is probably the worst idea ever, but I tried to eject off the bike. And for some reason, I landed up just going with the bike and uh, kind of landed, landed and just, it was just a pile of, it was a heap of mess. And uh, I was sort of in and out of consciousness and, my I knew my leg was really bad when I looked down at my I was looking at the sole of my foot um of the boot and the boots had folded over and then like as I said I was sort of in and out of consciousness and kind of woke up and that really operated in that and you kind of learn the extent of your injuries then um when you can't move and you're just kind of full of pethidine but yeah it was uh it took me like three, I think four months to walk properly. And the rehab in, in total was about two years in total, but it was like, I, I was up and kind of up and about pretty quickly after that. But the extensiveness after that took, was, was quite a while. So obviously there was a, a shift in sporting priorities for you after that to, to, <laughs> yeah. to the, yeah. to the sport of cycling. But you've also, you've, you've done some great stuff on a bike too, by uh, bicycles. Um, across road riding um, in the in the cross country space, tell us a little bit about your very clear passion for for cycling. And it must have been weird, like having to use your legs as opposed to your wrist to get the power down. Yeah, it was very different. Um, the the guy that was actually doing my rehab, funny enough, um, was an ex uh, Olympic road track and, and mountain biker. Funny enough, and 
he was the one that said to me, here's a bicycle, you know, go and go and ride a bike and uh, just for rehab and stuff. And like, as that everyone's story is, you kind of like that, that bike bug bites and you just keep riding bikes and, you know, you do the inevitable August and you do okay in that. And you think you like the latest Fabio Roo and yeah, I've kind of built up from that and I was really into it and started like racing sort of everything you do. And uh, back then, you know, if you take the timeline of like 08, 09 until about 2012, it was uh, in Cape Town alone, especially we, we had a really good league, road league, and it was great racing and, and it was very, very hard as opposed to where now kind of the focus is, is more on the mountain bike marathon stuff. But yeah, I rode uh, our Super League. I won some races, um, did okay in a like in, in the world qualifying series. I finished on the podium on that. Um, also lost a lot of races and was spat out the back. But yeah, it was good during the, the, the time. Uh, then kind of when it died down a bit, I, I raced some some mountain bike with, with Gavin Rousseau, um, which yeah, also was, was really good. We got some good results on that. Like there's a bunch of old age groupers who were running you know, just inside the top 10, top 12 in like our, if you want to call it like Sarnies and, and those type of events. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, kind of you start working and those things sort of fade away. So, but yeah, it, it was good. Like definitely not a, not a champion, but I, I, I was happy with, with what I had done on the bike. So were you one of those crazies that went into the weekly pain cave around Kalani? Yes, I did. I did that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Th those days were. It was very different. Like the guys are fast now. Don't get me wrong, but but back then it was. You know, you had guys like, you know, Darren Lull, who was still riding on BMC. Like he would come in at. I think he weighed like thirty kilos in like a Howling Southeast day. He would like ride away from everyone, and everyone would chase him. And it was just, you know, like I've been back you know, when I've had no form and you can kind of hang on, you get spat out. But then it was just, Kalani was another animal. Um, it still is, but, you know, I'm still convinced back then it was, it was so savage. So in terms of, you know, having that riding background, I mean, not just in a two-wheel motorsport sense of the word, but also, you know, personally cycling yourself, is that, has that added any value to, to the way that you coach people and, 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 so what I mean by that is your personal journey as a cyclist in terms of the way you connect with your athletes, the way you engage with them, encourage them, reprimand them sometimes when you have to. Would you say that that, that was a crucial period of your of your life that's added value to your overall coaching approach? Yeah, definitely. Like I have, like just as a personal thing, I have quite a sort of a, a, a steady OCD personality going. So, you know, if I do something, I kind of, if my personality bites, I kind of get, go 100% into it and like as I said I was never a, a pro or anything when I rode a bike but I I lived like one you know so from that side which is maybe also a bit of a, a downfall but you learn from doing that and knowing how to do a session properly or knowing how a session's meant to feel or you know where you are in a race etc I, I do believe it's, it's definitely helped me when I try explain something to someone or when they're explaining to me and they're saying you know this is how it felt or this is the sensations or whatever the case may be um, I, I, I do believe I can relate to that um, you know it doesn't you don't have to be the best to relate to that to that you know your fastest was the same as my fastest is feelings wise.
Mm, absolutely. So in terms of your progression into into focusing coaching, your coaching experience into into cycling, you touched on it earlier in saying that you know you'd managed several teams in the in the motorsport space. You'd spent time in America. Would it not have made sense to continue down that road and, and move into more of a global coaching role, so to speak, in the two-wheel motorsport space? So what what made you focus or, or want to head in the direction of cycling? Um it, it was something I wanted to do. Like, you know, ultimately you either want to go to Europe or America for, for motocross. And um, I was pretty strong on, on wanting to go to America. And you put your feelers out and, you know, there are stuff there and there isn't. And then when I had met, uh, when I stopped in the, in the South African side, I, I'll be honest, I was a, a little bit disillusioned with everything. Like there was a big change in the sport that I didn't agree with in terms of series that were happening. Um, and there was a lot of infighting and it just, it left me a bit sour. So it turned me off motocross quite a bit for a short period of time, like for probably about a year. Um, and at that time, I just sort of focused fully on on, on the cycling side. And, and at the end of that year, it, it kind of was so big, like in terms of what I did in volume versus the motocross side um it was almost stupid to stop what i had built in 12 months to go back to that motocross um so that was sort of one of the main reasons and and i was also really enjoying it because it was really new and it was uh, it it was all fresh for me it was like having a new girlfriend you know it was everything's great for for the first bit um and although i, I still kept a lot of or not a lot, like a good handful of motocross athletes uh, that had been with me for a long time and they still wanted coaching, but I had done it sort of just on the back burner. Um, and then actually last year, funny enough, I actually got a, a, a very, very good offer, which nobody knows about except some of my close friends, to go uh, and work for KTM USA um, and work and do their, wow. yeah, do their 250 program um, and sort of, work at baker's factory next to alden he would do the 450s i do the 250s and um it was a it was a very serious consideration for me the money was good everything was good and it was a project i was i was pretty keen on um the one downfall is obviously i had to live in florida which wasn't a big thing and uh you know eventually obviously with uae they they extended me for two years and i was like it, it, it was just a better deal, you know, like on, on a, not really a safety net, but just as a, you know, I knew the guys, I was in the system, what they offered me was good. So I, I carried on. Um, and also the other downfall to that, I was, I was a bit worried of what it was going to do to my South African clientele and, and our business where, you know, from Europe, the timeline's the same, you know, it's seven o'clock is seven o'clock or maybe an hour difference. But when you're looking on that, like eight, nine hour difference, I was worried that that would be a problem. And, and I wasn't really prepared to give that up. Nice to have that, uh, that type of offer floating around there. Definitely, I'd say speaks to building, building one's confidence, but still sticking with the motorsport. What, what for you was your, your biggest personal achievement, not necessarily from your racing, personal racing perspective, but more from your, your coaching perspective. You've worked with, with some really talented athletes, as I said in the introduction, both locally and abroad. But what, what for you is, is uh, your biggest success in that space? Um, like I know this sounds kind of cliche or corny in that, but, but some of the relationships I made during then, like we still have close today, and that's like 12, 14 years later. Um, but 
like uh, winning essentially is kind of everything at the end of the day but like winning sort of every class in in, in mx uh, during our nationals whether it's pro mini 125 mx2 mx1 um i think i missed a vet one with with wayne the one year but you know winning those multiple times um was great and also watching guys that i had from young you know like even nine years old at the time and they're now 24 23 go on to win like an mx gp with colvin flandron um you know it's it's pretty amazing when when you look at old photos and he's like this little kid and you know you're shouting at him and now you know he's winning a, a grand prix overall it's it's pretty incredible from from a dusty cape town track yeah it is crazy it's all <laughs> it's, it's I always love those journeys, you know, in particular of South Africans, because we general we generally the underdogs, no matter what we're going into. Always. And you know, yeah. especially with the Rand, it doesn't do us any favors. But you still get those guys that just you know, the Calvins, the Brad Binders, mm. you know, the Wade Youngs. Yes. You know, there's there's so many of these Alfie Coxes, and I mean, there's so many more Brian Cappers. Um, it's it's just yeah, it always puts a puts a big smile on my face when you see a South African, especially in motorsport, because cheap is it's expensive. It's, I mean, we think mountain biking is, well, cycling is expensive. It's a, it's a whole nother world. Yeah. It's uh, like, you know, even if, if you don't li- like, you know, you, you don't have to like every single person, but when you see someone that even if you don't like them or you've had a run in with them or whatever, but you see them doing well overseas, like to me, it's, it's a big thing. For, for a South African, it, it's so hard. And the amount of guys that make it to whatever degree you call making it, you know, like even if it's just a career and they go running mid-pack, you know, they for them, they've made it. And even to do that, it's, you know, for, for literally every 20 that go, there's maybe one that makes it. Um, it's, it's so hard for a South African to do it. People don't understand that. Yeah, unless they've been there and experienced it. So, in your in your in your two wheel motorsport uh, journey, you met a, a youngster that uh, is now part of your training or your your athlete squad, so to speak, still based here in South Africa. Well, yeah, that was uh, young Matt Beers who managed to transfer from one sport to the other. What uh, people from the outside would say is rather seamless, but he had quite an interesting journey as well. And you've been there from the very beginning with young Matt. So tell us a little bit about that relationship because he's an exciting talent on the bike. Yeah, Matt. <laughs> yeah, Matt, Matt is Matt. He's a very special personality there, but, but a huge talent. Um, I had met Matt. Yeah, it was, uh, there was like a bunch of kids that, that I had trained uh, when I say kids, sort of teenagers and stuff. And, and, one parent had come to me and said, you know, hey, there's like this new kid, um, you know, part of our brat pack, would I coach him? And and I had no intention to, to be very honest. I, I sort of did it as a favor for someone. <clears throat> and this was, I think, like 2006. It was at the last national of, of, of the year in Bloemfontein. And um, I took him on purely as, as a favor, as I said, like as wrong as that sounds. And um basically six weeks into it or like seven weeks into it when you kind of start understanding someone a little bit better you knew that you know whether he had the talent or not he was an he approached what he did with absolute conviction um you know it it was evident and anything you gave him he did it and um yeah he he got by at, at motocross purely on look he was talented like his one speciality was that he he worked really hard 
where guys had natural talent, he worked his way up, but he also had a very different line choice when, when he ran lines on the track. You know, like you don't run the same one every single lap or every time, but his creativity was really good. And if you watch him ride a mountain bike, he does a very similar thing, um, especially if you watch him go uphill. It's uh, like just on technical stuff, but but that's what he was really good at. And okay, he was also really tall, so it does have its benefits. But yeah, that was Matt Beers, and he eventually, yeah, he eventually landed up going to the states uh, two years to to Millsaps, um, which is another train like a, a big amateur training facility there. And yeah, he unfortunately got injured, and that's that's why he came home and he stopped motocross. So from him moving from motocross into cycling, I mean, obviously we've you and I've connected before this on the Instagram live. You were telling us about the role that you that you played there, um, and uh, quite a quite a funny story of how you kind of floated the idea and what it's ended up being now. Talk us talk us through that transition because technically speaking, Matt's a big lad. Like you wouldn't look at Matt and say that guy's gonna is gonna has got this incredible cycling talent. Yes, maybe he's got power, but realistically, maybe he's a bit too big. So talk us through that journey. Yeah, so yeah, as I said, he had he had injured himself and he had broken his ankle and and they had to actually fuse it. And obviously, with a fusion of that nature, I I knew it was over for him. But you can't really tell him that when he's eight thousand kilometers away. But he kind of knew it, and he came to my house when he had got back from the states, and he was on my couch in tears, telling me his life's over, the career's over, and and all those things that go with it, and. I kind of went into complete kind of like I need to fix this in a hurry mode and I went into salesman mode and I, I said to him, you know what, buddy, like you've been riding bicycles at Millsaps, you, you're going well. I said, let's go race mountain bikes. I said, like, it's just like motocross, except you pedal. And that was my like sales pitch. And I think at the time I, I hit him with his wall down and he was like, okay, let's go do it. And they, then they had the marathon and the ultras and then and the marathons were sort of under 23s and it was 80ks and he went uh, i packed him off and i was like take your dad you're going to go to this national and i think it was savvy and his dad jumped in the car and they they went through and the next minute he won <laughs> like that was it and you know then he was racing the likes of like an arno de toy and and you know like arno was last year's sa marathon champion yeah, it was, he had crashed, he had smashed his head and being Matt, who's kind of like eye of the tiger, just got on his bike and, and kept smashing it. And there was also, which someone had mentioned in on, on, the, on the messages and that is he also raced and he broke his pedal. And again, like just as Matt is Matt, it's, he just gets up and keeps going and kind of testament to, to his crash at Epic. But, you know, after that and I, during that time leading up to it, I'd given him this like, sort of half hours training program to follow just so just to keep him happy and I'll deal with it after the race and then when he had won and you know on like some old hardtail I was like we actually onto something here and you know for him the like bug had bitten he liked it because he had won and uh yeah the rest is history and that's Matt's Matt Beers today. One thing I've always noticed about Matt is, is much like yourself, and it's probably why you guys do connect as coach and athlete so well, but probably beyond that as, as now friends, is that you you guys are, there's no bullshit uh, in your approach. I mean, you're known as being a, a frank person, and, you know, sometimes that means telling people what they don't want to hear, 
Yeah. But Matt also, you know, gives off the impression that he is, he, he has a very similar approach to his training. And that must be, you know, as a coach, it's a, it's, it's something that I don't think people that haven't been coached before would understand is that in my view, your coach is equally as invested into the performance of an athlete as, as the athlete is themselves. It's a, it's a hand and glove relationship. It's so important, but as a coach, you have to be able to trust the fact that your athlete's going to do absolutely everything you need them to do. And they trust you in knowing what's best for them. And you look like you've, I mean, with, with all of your athletes, but with Matt and Alan Hatley in particular, I mean, you guys have done some great things together. It must be a pleasure working with that caliber of individual that takes responsibility. Yeah, it is. Um, and from a personality side, they are black and white, you know, like sort of, as you said, Matt is direct. You know, I'll say to him, this is how it is. Like, don't do this or what are you doing? And I'll give him my two cents, like very direct. He'll say typically, okay, is like, or is it when he knows he's in trouble or something like that? Or he'll give me his <laughs> feedback and he'll go, no, A, B, C, D. And then we'll come to E and it's done. It's out the window and, it's, and we move on. Like it, it's straight, short, direct. Where with Alan, it's a very different approach. You know, we'll get to the same end point, but it's more like, hey, Alan, how's life? You know, how's a budgie? How's this? How's Jade? <laughs> you know, and like it's a, it's a build up to saying, please don't do this. Or I need you to do this. I know you don't want to, but I need you to do this. You know, and then we'll communicate, great communication, very different back. And then 15 minutes later, it's over, you know, and then we'll probably talk about random stuff where like with Matt, it's just boom, 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 done. And it's game over, you know? So if, if, if I had to, which I have tried to approach it, Alan with Matt and, and, you know, Matt with Alan, I, I get nowhere. It's, it, it just doesn't work. Well, the reason I brought Alan into the conversation here as well is because both of these guys came together to race the Cape Epic in 2019 and delivered a performance that was incredible, all things considered. I mean, you, you noted it a little bit earlier, Matt having a massive crash. You know, a lesser man would not have continued, that's for sure. We saw the likes of Sam Gaze getting a small roasty on his knee and pulling out. Matt literally yeah. ripping himself to pieces and going on to <laughs> to getting the African leader jersey and fifth overall. I mean, in my mind, I've no doubt there would have been a South African podium overall um, if, if that hadn't have happened. But that must have been quite, quite, quite nice to see two individuals that you've been coaching for a long period of time coming together and executing the way they did. Yeah, it was, you know, I'd always kind of complained or whatever the case or like behind the scenes, given both of them a lot of, you know, like, why, why can't you race together? You know, like, it'll be the best thing for South Africa, you know, blow, like in the given climate and that. And I understood 100% that each different teams, yes, specialized, but it's different teams, different commitments, and, 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 and when that possibility with, with everything that was going on around Epic at, at that particular time surfaced literally on like the Tuesday before Epic, I was, I was more down their phone every five minutes saying, is this confirmed? Is this confirmed? I think I was more excited than, than what they were, you know, like they were eventually like not replying to my messages and then I'd phone and then they wouldn't kind of answer the phone. So when, when they got together, it was like, my life is complete for mountain biking. That's it. I'm, I'm done. And uh, obviously, they went off and raced. And, you know, as you said, anything happens in Epic. But I truly believe if, if Matt didn't 
have the, the that crash and the magnitude it was that they would have podiums. Um, you know, you can never say that till the end of the day, but I, I, I truly do believe that. Mm, likewise, if everything was equal and everyone had a clean race and no crashes and no punches and mechanicals, there would have been, I agree, I think top three, top three for sure. Mm. But during that process of Epic and having had that crash and so on, were you at all involved or at least in touch with Matt to try and try and help him work through that process or yeah, I spoke to them both every day after Epic. Um, you know, on the day of the crash, I really just got a very short message from Matt because he was actually being cleaned up and stuff at the time. Um, and I spoke to Alan, obviously, and I got the finer details from Alan, which was understandable. But, you know, it was more just like saying to Matt, can you walk? Yes. Can you ride? Yes. Well, then go race your bike. You know, that's, that was the sort of approach to to Matt and how he responded to it. And, you know, with Matt, it kind of made him more angry I believe not that he ever exerted it or said that to me but like I know how he ticks and I think that crash really pissed him off and that kind of is what kept him going even stronger than than what he did but it was checking on him every day reminding him to get stuff cleaned um you know all the basics um and just like hey bud stick in it's one day less um you know during that particular time a little bit of less was was more Mm. And as a team, though, quite an interesting dynamic because physiologically, they're completely different humans. Matt's this tall, lanky guy with massive power. Um, Alan is this shorter guy that's, you know, quite quite slim in his physique and so on. I mean, if, if an uneducated mind would look at those people and you'd say, how on earth would a team like that work so well together? How do you end up balancing a team of that nature? I mean, they obviously have different strengths and, and they obviously have their respective weaknesses. But how does a team that looks so different in terms of their shape and size end up working so well together? And how, how you, do you as a coach try and make that happen? Um, if, like they, they are absolute best friends. So they know each other inside and out, like the back of their hand. And they train literally every day together, you know, whether their sessions are slightly different on the day, but, you know, they, they know each other left, right and center. So they know what a weakness and a strength is. And it's just making sure that each one works to their strength and weakness, you know. So if it's a long climb, as an example, like a 30 minute climb, you know, Matt will be a bit stronger than, than Alan, you know. So it would be essentially Matt's to pace it out, control it, et cetera, where if they're starting to hit little four-minute rollers where Alan's a monster, it's not to leave Matt behind. You know, and, and communication is key. It's just making sure that they are playing to each other's strengths and benefiting from each other's strengths and sort of, I don't know if it's the right word to say nurturing each other, but just making sure that communication is open and, and you know, each strength is played to to the best. Well, I really hope that obviously we know Olympics has shifted out Tokyo to 2021, but I, geez, I'd be excited to see Matt and Alan teaming up again for Epic. I really hope that happens. Yeah, I, I really do too. And like, again, it's maybe bias saying this, but but I really believe on paper that they can win it. And they are in the last, you know, like, again, I may be biased, but in the last long re- while that South Africa's best chance to actually win Epic. Um, you know, yes, guys were close and and so on, but you know, as an outright win, I I do believe that that they are um, definitely potential to winners. There must be some, uh, I'd say, a fair amount of frustration on Matt's part. Um, 
in the in the domestic racing season if you look at stage races and so on and this is not to not a case of of me saying that uh, the other guys that are in the domestic racing uh, space aren't aren't skilled and, and immensely talented but but matt is is the powerhouse at the moment i would argue he's the man to beat in south africa i mean outside of alan uh, so to so to speak but in terms of his team setup he's the he is by far the strongest in the nad pro setup um how do you manage that aspect of of matt as well because you know we know what his potential is in teaming up with someone like alan but they don't race on the same teams they're in different parts of the world for for large periods of time how do we how do we keep matt stoked on riding bikes when he can't race with that with his with his equivalent so to speak in power and performance um there it's it's just winning you know that's kind of what your goal is it's like you today you win it and then or you try win it by two minutes or three minutes or you know stuff like that I, I know it sounds really bad against his competition and and I coach a lot of the guys he races against um but like it, Matt is that good like it, he really is like he, you know he wins kind of at at will at the moment and and again it, it's a bit disrespectful to say that to to his competitors because and it's not the case but that is how good matt is at the moment you know you, you somebody may be coming through and you know when you take atakwasis yeah he had been back i think on the bike for literally two weeks i think two and a half weeks prior to atakwas and he rode away from the guys i think at like 80 k's because it was starting to rain he didn't want to get wet and he had no rain jacket so <laughs> You know, it's it's and but when you take the racing behind that, it's it's unbelievably good. And the guys, you know, not saying he wins anything he enters, but you know, in a way, he does. And you know, we we sent him to race some cross country races, I think, like two years ago or something, if I remember correctly. And again, he finished second to Alan, and like he had done, I think, one cross country race where he crashed out and broke his wrist like three years earlier. So. From a versatility point, he's he's a phenomenal talent, um, you know. And, and and I would say this even if I wasn't coaching him. And you just look at him on paper; it's it, it's evident. Um, but again, it, it's not disrespectful to anyone racing against. No, him. of course not. So, you know, it's uh, for him to stay motivated is is to win. You know, really, that's it. Um, and and he enjoys winning. And you know, like he just enjoys racing hard. Actually, it's like the harder, the worse, the like the the colder the rainier or the hotter and the longer and harder the race is the more he seems to kind of enjoy it um like i don't know it's like a little bit of suicidal tendencies but you know if you ask him to go right around the august he's like you know but you ask him to go suffer at, at adequas for like four hours and he's the happiest guy in the world mm, it's crazy it speaks a lot to the to the man's character so i guess now i want to i want to take it to the to the kind of your journey through through being a coach in the cycling space, I mean, um, you were you were instrumental in the in the development and coaching around uh, Team Cargo and the cross country space, and uh, you've obviously moved up to where you are today. To talked a lot about Matt and Alan as individuals, but talk us through your different roles in the coaching space from a team perspective to to where you are now. Um, yeah, from from like an actual team perspective, being involved in a team. Um, like I, I prefer working with, with individual athletes, you know, not actually within a team environment itself. Cause there's always, there's a lot of politics and, and stuff that goes on in it, but you know, sometime, you know, with the cargo, you know, they approached us and, and they were like, would you be able to help us? And 
it, it was great. You know, like I, I landed up with, with Alan from, from cargo. So from that side, it, it's, it's not a bad experience, but a lot of the time, um, I try to sort of stay outside of it. Um, you know, like working with, as an example, Arno Detoy, who is on DSV and my communication from that, you know, yes, I deal with Malcolm who owns the team sometimes, uh, at times I, I deal with him, but majority I deal with an athlete. Um, if the team and that obviously requests information and stuff, which, you know, obviously coming to Epic, it, it was a big thing, you know, whatever they need, I furnish, et cetera. Um, but how I landed up on, on UAE, obviously it, it's a little different in terms of being on a, on, on, from a scale perspective, you know, from a world tour team to if I take cargo, yes, it was a professional team, but the level that you at is it's completely different, you know? So even though I'm not a, a huge fan of being in a locked into a team environment itself, you know, being on UAE is, it's completely different in terms of what I do, who I deal with, um, you know, projects we do, et cetera. It's, um, you're in a team, but a little bit individual um, when you get projects and stuff and, and athletes to work with. Although you work with all 28 riders, I personally work with eight of them. So, you know, you you, you do have that personal feeling to it, um, which is great. So how did you actually end up in the position that you are now? Because, I mean, that's it's a remarkable position that you're in. I mean, this is this is one of the most competitive teams on the world tour. How did the stars align for John to end up where he is now? Um, Jaron Swartz and I were in Girona. Uh, we had been to Science and Cycling Conference beforehand, and we came across to actually to Girona, funny enough, to look at a, a very small-scale sort of collaboration on a business aspect, um, which I think we landed up riding more than bicycles than we did actually on the, on the work project. But we were riding the one day, and, and his phone rang, <clears throat> And it was uh, obviously someone asking whether he would be interested in the um, head of uh, medical for the team. And I was like, geez, well done, like amazing, you know, like all due respect to him. And as it kind of went, I'd heard sort of restructuring they were doing within the team and that they were looking for sort of coaching and performance staff. I had reached out, reach out to them anyway um, and just sort of put my name in the hat. But at the same time, I was talking to another world tour team and we were significantly further down the line than we were when or where I was with UAE. And the communication with UAE was was good. And then I wouldn't hear from them and I'd hear from the other team. And it was like, a, it was a lot of kind of backwards and forth between double both of the teams. And I had spoken to the other team on the Friday and it was it was a really good conversation and they were like oh we'll and, and and prior to that i hadn't heard from uae for probably three weeks so i was like ah it's dead in the water and the monday the other team i never heard from them and the tuesday i just got an email with a flight ticket to go to the team uh like i won't say it was a training camp but more like a a, a get together in in uh, abu dhabi from uae and they were like i'm just wait for just a flight and I was like, yeah, yeah like I, I didn't know what to do. And I was like, but I'm really talking to this team and it was really positive. And I kind of sat there and I was like, this ticket's for tomorrow. And they've given me a ticket and the other team hasn't. And I was like, I've got to go. You know, like it's, it's not even a job, but I've got to go. And I uh, went and bought some smart clothes, 
that day, got on a plane the following day and, and shot off to, uh, to, to UAE, to uh, Dubai and, and uh, Abu Dhabi. Got a testing protocol en route on the flight. And I was told, you know, you're going to be testing guys when you land. And I was like, I've never done this before in my life. And uh, landed, went to, went to a private uh, gym facility, which, which was owned by the sheik of the country. And there was 30, 30 riders, like 15 staff. They brought half the staff or so, uh, or just like a bunch of staff. And um, there were stations for testing, but nothing was connected. So I was the only guy that landed up by pure chance knowing how to connect all this stuff together. And two hours later, we started testing. And and the first guy that I tested was was Rui Costa, who was like a world, the, the world champ. And I was like, yes, I really could have like eased me into this. And I was like, I was shaking and it, it was a mess. <laughs> and uh, eventually, like a couple of days later, we get whirled around the country. And, you know, like it was really an amazing experience. Got on a plane and I flew home. And that was it. And uh no contract or anything and obviously on their flights on with flights now there's wi-fi and my wife was like hey have you got the job and you know and i was like no nah, like nobody said it like literally got packed up and sent home you know i was like but you know what i got to like fist bump fabio and i got to squeeze Rui costa's ear i was like it was an amazing experience you know and and i left it at that and probably um halfway on my flight home i got a email from from the ceo and it had a contract in and it was like cheers thanks we uh we're really impressed like thanks very much and that was it you know it was uh, and the rest is history i suppose yeah it was uh, and i was assigned uh it's actually a fancy story which i didn't say on my um on on wild wild atv but i Got uh, got my like coaching list of of riders, and I actually had to kind of Google who some of them were because I didn't know all of them. And but we weren't allowed to make it public yet, and it was quiet. And I remember I was doing I was with Mike Posthumus actually, and I was doing intervals on Ocarpsevach, and I don't know how it happened, but my Insta story uploaded that screen grab. <laughs> and my, you know, it was like, I'll never forget it. And uh, like it had my name and it had the riders and like it had another coach and like you could just see some of his riders. And um, yeah, my phone was going like crazy at like eight o'clock in the morning. And I was like, you know, like something's going down. Anyway, I got home and I looked and everyone was like, she's amazing, you know, blah, blah. And I was like, you know, how'd you know this? You know, and some like my mate said Instagram story and like oh, like my heart sank. I thought I was going to be fired, and because uh, obviously they like check your your social media stuff and that. And anyway, it, it was all good. But yeah, that was like a story where I was like, this is over prior to it even beginning. Um, yeah, it was it was incredible. Hectic man. Yeah, geez, your your heart must have wanted to jump out of your brain when you saw that. That's yeah, it was it was such a bad upload. Sure. <laughs> now, in terms of in terms of the structures there, I mean that's that's kind of always fascinated me because you don't get to see behind the curtains i mean um that show on netflix the f1 series yes i i really think they should do something on that unlike world tour cycling to that level because i've no doubt there's a lot of similarities between what happens in f1 in terms of athlete negotiations and teams and bikes and sponsors and mm. swapping of the end of seasons and what's it like you know in real life um it's pretty much exactly like that F1. Um, you know, like 
I watched it when someone said to me, you know, hey, watch that. Like, I, I don't watch a lot of F1, but someone said to me, watch this series, you know, it, it'll re- relate to, to your cycling. And I watched it with that to see if I could take tips and kind of transfer it over. But it really is like that, you know, like we test tires as an example for rolling resistance. We test tubes to see if like a lighter tube is better than a heavier tube, um, like obviously different power meters and stuff. Uh, although, you know, like you land up being sponsored by them, but, you know, you you test stuff continuously. You like the biomechanics of it in terms of bike setups being done, um, you know, in terms of when I say this, it's in a good way, like in terms of medical, um, like just the rider's health and stuff like that is is unbelievable, not only from a physical, but like a mental aspect to make sure that our riders are mentally happy. You know, just those systems you put in place, our nutritionist, what, what, what he does, he's a magician, you know, like he's got 30 individual athletes and, and every nutrition plan is different because it's a different rider and it's a different week, you know. So he, as an example, he would look at what I've prescribed to uh, Jan Pollank and for the week and he would build his nutrition based off that, you know. So when we go to grand tours or big stage races, we take a chef with, you know, so who just solely cooks for the team out of a hotel uh, uh, kitchen, et cetera. And, you know, hiring riders in that, I'm not at all involved in that process. My process is more kind of data driven. So they'll say, Hey, we looking at Doug Bird, here's his data, you know, and, and I'll give my feedback or, you know, whoever will give feedback on that. Um, However, in terms of, of hiring a rider, it's not just, okay, cool, you finished fifth at, at the tour, you're a talent, we'll take you on. Um, the process on that is obviously the negotiation with their manager. You know, do they come alone or do they come with their own Sonia, their two super domestiques that they want, and do they try come with a coach? You know, so it's not just, hiring cool here's x amount of money and come over and then second obviously from that is in terms of going hiring a rider you look at their their biological passport to make sure that you know there there is nothing funny going on there that they are as you would say clean or there's no suspect stuff or whatever the case may be so it's not just cool, come, we'll, we'll hook you up, come and ride bikes for us. Um, it's, it's, and, and every team does that. So it's, you know, it's not just us, but that's sort of uh, what well, I presume every team does it, but it, it's a lengthy process. It's not just, Hey, cool. Here's a set of bibs, let, let's ride bikes. So for you as a coach though, I mean, that's an incredibly dynamic environment to be working in, especially when it comes to the ends of seasons and contract negotiations. And some athletes even move during seasons if they can find a way out of their contracts and into new ones. As a coach though, how does that influence your approach? I mean, if you, like you say, you've got your eight guys of three out of the eight, then ship off to another team and, you know, you get three new guys and, you know, that's quite a, I'd imagine an, an adaptation to, to getting to know them, what they're capable of, their personalities, like you touched on it earlier, you know, Alan and Matt, two very different people in the way you deal with them. How long does it take for you to get to the point where you feel that you're, you know, you've established a good rapport, you know where they're at and you can get the most out of them? Um, I personally think it's about three months, like in total. Um, you know, they, they'll get a clearer picture of what I'm like and you'll get a much better, clearer picture of what they like. Um, how they train, how their mental approaches, 
how kind of serious they are when they're focused or how unfocused they are. Um, and also just purely from a personality trait, how do you, how do you approach them on stuff? Um, to me, that is, that that's key. You know, it's like, yes, you need the athlete to adapt to you, but for me, it's more important to adapt to that rider's personality to get the best out of them. You know, it's, that's what I need to do. It's not for me to go, well, this is me in a nutshell, either you like it or you don't, you know, yes, in a way you have to do that, but it's more me being able to approach him and go, this is what I need done. How am I going to get this out of him the best way possible? You know, and, and that, and that to me is, is key in, in, uh, in, in sort of any coaching realm. And it's that sort of personal connection as opposed to, you know, like, a lot of coaches I believe are are very ego driven. And when you hear stories from some athletes that have possibly come over to you or, you know, whatever, it's like, it, it's, it, it's very ego driven. And to me, that's, it, it's not about you as a coach. It's about them as an athlete. You know, if, if the athlete does well, you look good, you know, like if that's how you want to look at it, but some, some stories you hear, you just like, you know, you're not competing with your coach. You you should be doing your own thing, and it's not about the coach. So, I mean, that's that's a softer side to to coaching that I suppose not many people really talk about, or it's not at least something that I've heard of spoken or heard spoken of um, in interviews of this nature or conversations of this nature. How do you develop that skill set though as a coach? Because I mean, there, there's no, I mean, yes, you can read up on it and you can study and so on, but ultimately it comes down to, I'd imagine, a whole lot of experience. When when in your career did you start to feel really comfortable in that space to to add value, so to speak? Probably about a year and a half into my motocross when, when I had multiple athletes. Um, and also then um, when I say I had young athletes, I had like teenagers who are very vulnerable at the best of times, you know, and very impressionable, et cetera. So, or they know everything. So that's when I realized like there wasn't a one fit system, you know, it was like, I needed to speak to this guy like that. I needed to adapt to him like that and basically have split personalities, you know? So when the phone rang, I was like, okay, I need to put this mask on because I'm speaking to Ryan or this mask on because I'm speaking to Caleb. And, um, yeah, I, I, like, you know, I'm, I'm sure many other guys do it and stuff, but that that's what I found was key. It was like, put myself aside and f- realize that it's about the athlete and that's what it's about. Um, however, there are personalities where you just never meet up, you know, like it, it, it's a fact, you know, so that you just got to also again, like, you know, for athletes like, you know, this isn't working from his side. And he's like, it's not working, John, or whatever. You can't take it personally. Like to me, it's just, it didn't work. So why try hold on to something and maybe not let him reach his full potential as opposed to me wanting him because he's a good athlete. You know, it's a, I kind of like, you know, I've got athletes that, that I haven't worked with for years that have moved on to other coaches, but yet we've kept in good contact and in good friendship, you know, so to me, that I think is is key as opposed to, you know, just a one-stop system. So bringing the conversation back home, what do you what are your views on the on the mountain biking and cycling scene in South Africa at the moment? We've seen an incredible expansion of the Spur Mountain Biking Schools League. I mean, over seventy-five events in a year. I was personally up at the schools uh, 
a series final in Brits last year, and I was absolutely blown away at uh, just the level of racing, the enthusiasm, the team support, the schools getting behind it. You know, you then move on a little bit and you look at uh, the period of time that I call the, the athlete's black hole between 18 and 23, where they're bridging the gap up to seniors. Yes. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of athletes falling off the bus, so to speak, during that period of time. But I mean, as the, all of those things aside, what are your views on the sport in SA at the moment? And, and what do you think is coming next for us? Um, I think that the sport is really healthy. Um, I, I really do. Um, I think it's there's there's a lot of talent coming through, and there is a lot of talent. And when I say talent, I don't mean there's a hundred Alan Hathleys coming through, but there's definitely fifty very very good talented riders coming through. There's there's no doubt. Um, the sit like the Spirit Series, I think, it, is absolutely fantastic. Um, in terms of our marathon racing, is really good, but our senior cross country is sort of you know, unless this current crop carry on going cross country in South Africa, I think there'll be a lot of them will be lost in the system and go the marathon route, um, which I think will be sad from it because we are obviously marathon based. The other kind of the one downfall I I I, I do think is parents are are just too over the top. You know, like we getting requests for for client for kids that are 14 and they want like, I want what Alan Hathley's got. And you're like, no, go ride your bike, you know? Um where that's just leads to burnout. And that's it's something I, I am very kind of strong and passionate about, like in terms of of overzealous parents and, and even overzealous kids, you know, like just they have to have everything now and you just rather be good when you're 23, not when you're 15. Um, you know, so just for longevity, but it's very healthy. It just needs to be managed and directed, I think, in the right way, um, as opposed to seeing there's a talent, everyone jumps on board and burns him out. Um, your your career kind of only starts on your first year under 23. And that's, that's when you know if you're going to kind of, again, make it or not. And by make it, I mean, go well. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to have a career out of it, but a lot of top juniors and youth make the first year under 23 and frizzle out so in kind of coming to the end of the conversation now one last question and it is fairly broad i would say but out of all the athletes that you've worked with over your years as a coach you know what are the the fundamental points that's that jump out at you that that you, that in your opinion uh, are the, the the essential ingredients to to being successful and and having a long career in the sport um have a long-term plan, like have an end goal, which may be South African champion, if that's your goal. But along the way, have smaller goals that you have to hit and don't don't rush it. That's, that's my biggest thing. It's like, don't be overzealous now. And if you don't hit a goal now, it's not the end of the world. You just change it and you, and you go to the next one. But my, my biggest thing is just have an end goal, but you need it eight small goals on the way there, you know, like Alan Hathley's five-year plan to world champs was a yearly five-year plan. That was it. You know, it wasn't like cool on year one, we're going to be world champion. It was like, just go race some cross countries and see how you go. That was plan one. And that goal was ticked, you know? So that that's the advice is just don't take it exceptionally as serious as if you are a world champion and there's one race left and have smaller goals to an end goal and as cliche as the sound is, is have fun. If you don't have fun, why are you doing it? And, and, and that's something I, I truly believe.
Absolutely. Well, John, if people want to reach out to you, if they want you to coach them, if they want to follow you on Instagram or on other social media forms, how do, how do people get in touch and how do they follow you? Um, Twitter, Instagram's the same. It's uh, Pelotrain, P-E-L-O-T-R-A-I-N. Um, I don't have Facebook. And email, if you want to email me, is john at science2sport.com. And it's a T-O on the two, not, not the letter two on the email. Fantastic. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Always enjoy chatting to you and learning and hearing about your journey. We will definitely do our very best to touch base with you towards the end of the year, hopefully when, when things are back up and racing. Yeah, I hope so too. I, I really need to go racing now. It's killing me sitting at home. Well, to all the <laughs> listeners, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Something Fresh. Uh, where we talk to innovators, athletes, and progressive thinkers. Until next time, stay safe, and we'll see you then.